What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, how researchers around the world are using the big breakthrough behind the COVID vaccine to find treatments for diseases of all kinds. Thanks to COVID, we're all experts now in viruses and vaccines, mRNA, and that last one, messenger RNA, is what we're talking about today. It's the technology that made it possible to quickly develop the COVID vaccine. And now researchers and drug makers are racing to use the same technique for other illnesses, including the big one, to treat cancers. Before we dive into that, maybe we should take a second to freshen up on just what mRNA is and why it's such a big deal. Most traditional vaccines, like for flu or for measles, mumps, work by injecting a weakened or dead strain of those viruses or a piece of them into your arm. Your body's immune system detects the intruder and attacks it and makes antibodies to fight off the disease if you're ever exposed to it for real. Now, mRNA vaccines are different. mRNA is really the middleman, and it brings the code for each gene to a machine in our cell that reads the RNA and produces a protein from that code. That's Dr. Drew Weissman, a vaccine researcher at the University of Pennsylvania. He and his colleague, Dr. Catalin Carrico, developed the mRNA technology used in the COVID shots. I'll talk more with Dr. Weissman in a moment. mRNA, that middleman he called it, is part of your body's genetic structure. Its job is to deliver instructions to your cells. It tells them to make certain proteins you need to live. An mRNA vaccine works by injecting mRNA into your body that's been programmed to tell your cells to make proteins that match the proteins found in the real virus, like the spike protein sticking up out of the coronavirus that makes those photos of it look so scary. Your body's immune system sees this foreign material and makes antibodies that can protect you later if you're exposed to real COVID. mRNA research has been happening for decades, and a lot of scientists made important contributions, but one nagging problem kept getting in the way of an mRNA vaccine. The body was attacking the mRNA itself before it could deliver its message. This is where doctors Weissman and Carrico come in. Their breakthrough was to modify the RNA so your immune system sees it as harmless and lets it do its job. That opened the door to the COVID vaccine and using mRNA for all kinds of other potential treatments and cures. Their work won them a $3 million science award and they're mentioned as possible contenders for a Nobel Prize. None of this may have happened if it weren't for a chance encounter Weissman and Carrico had at the photocopy machine back in the 1990s. She had been working on it for around 10 years and nobody was interested. And we met 
and we started working together and people still weren't interested. But we were able to develop a new way of working on RNA. And that led to the development of nucleoside-modified mRNA that people finally became interested in. As Dr. Weissman and I got talking, I asked him why mRNA research was such a hard sell. RNA had been studied, it had been put into clinical trials, and it had failed. So when Katie and I started working on it, we developed new ways of making RNA therapy work better. So is it an overstatement to say that if you had not had a fateful encounter at the copying machine, we might not have had the coronavirus vaccine as quickly as we did? Um, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, that is uh, pretty fascinating. Do you ever just sort of look back on that moment and think, my goodness, what if? Yeah, my wife and kids point that out to us all of the time. And then when the coronavirus first emerged in Wuhan, China, I believe you were working on a flu vaccine, and then you sort of switched, right? Because you saw great promise in this? Exactly. We were working on flu and other vaccines. And when the COVID-19 virus came out, we saw that as a potential difficulty for the world. And we switched to working on COVID-19. So you actually saw this and said, wait a minute, this is going to be a very big problem for the world. Kind of like, I don't want to overstate it, but the world needs me? I, I guess so. I mean, I'm kind of too humble to say something like that. <laughs> but when I saw the death and the disease come out of uh, Wuhan, China, my lab started working on it with the idea that this could be a really bad thing and we needed to do something. And how quickly did you realize that the work that you had been doing for years was really very well suited for this particular virus? So it, it was really immediate because we saw this as a brand new unknown virus that was having worldwide potential damage and we needed to do something. And the RNA that Katie and I had developed appeared like a great potential way to address it. Now, the UK has approved the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for use. That makes Britain the first Western country to license a coronavirus vaccine. Well, the fate of Pfizer's COVID vaccine now lies in the hands of regulators who will be scrutinizing safety and efficacy data. Certainly everything that's been talked about from the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine as well up to date has uh, been very positive and leaves me optimistic about this vaccine coming down the pipeline. So is the goal now to try to come up with a vaccine against coronavirus that is the one that will attack them all? Exactly. So we and others have been working on vaccines that work against any virus that suddenly appears in the world. Let me ask you about the business side of this. So you paint a picture of a platform that could quickly address a new disease. But the way the pharmaceutical industry has worked is that they wanted to keep a pretty close hold on newly developed therapies because they spend a lot making them and they want to profit from them. Uh, do you see this as the sort of thing where scientists and drug companies would actually share 
or that there would be proprietary versions of each of these platforms that different manufacturers keep close to the vest. So that brings up a socioeconomic worldview order that scientists like me, we have a view that that we need to develop something that can be rapidly used to treat the world. How the world deals with that is a whole separate and difficult thing. Is that something that you discuss with your colleagues? We talk about it all the time, sometimes not so kindly about how the world sometimes deals with it. Something that that has been central to my really life since I was a tiny child is to be able to develop therapies that can be used quickly across the world and by the entire world to treat and address any disease, any new change in life, change in the world that happens. It's important that it's available to the entire world to apply to the world's population, not just a U.S. or Europe-based approach that can be applied by wealthy nations and pharmaceutical companies. So I've spent my life making therapies available to the world and helping the world to develop it and apply it to their particular diseases. But when you look at the distribution, say, of the coronavirus vaccine, it has been very uneven around the world, and it's along predictable lines where rich countries get it and um, less rich countries often don't. Yeah, so that's what we've worked on. The minute the vaccine hit, I had already been working in Thailand, and they came to me and said, we're worried that any vaccine that's developed won't make it to us very quickly. So I work with them to make their own vaccine and their own company centers to be able to produce vaccine to give to their population and surrounding populations. And we've done the same thing in Africa and we're doing the same thing in all disadvantaged regions of the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This was just fascinating. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. When the Big Take is back, I talk with Bloomberg Healthcare reporter Riley Griffin. She explains how we got from Dr. Wiseman's research to Big Pharma producing billions of doses of COVID vaccine in record time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm happy to be here with Bloomberg reporter Riley Griffin. Riley, there are a lot of companies that see a big future in mRNA treatments. And you have written a fascinating story about one of the big ones, Pfizer. We're all familiar with Pfizer now because of the vaccine. And it's an interesting story because before the pandemic, Pfizer had become something of sort of a staid company. They're huge. They have a ton of money, and they use that money to buy other drug companies instead of making their own. But COVID changed that. COVID changed that. Absolutely. I I would say there was a shift right before COVID. Let me take you back to 2019. So 2019, Albert Borla takes the helm of Pfizer. Um, He is the new CEO, and he ultimately had a new vision for Pfizer. So this company that had become quite a conglomerate with many of these big blockbuster drugs that had gone off patent, think Viagra, think Lipitor, it hadn't had innovation in quite some time. And it was looking to be more like the nimble biotechs that were spurring a lot of investor interest, real growth stories. And so Albert Borla had hived off the off-patent generic drug unit and sold it into another company. And ultimately, you know, they were looking for science. And that was early 2019 and 2020 hits. Albert Borla's at the helm and they have to decide what to do next. And they had already been looking at these mRNA vaccines, but they weren't looking at it for COVID. They'd already been working on it. Precisely, Wes. So back in 2018, Pfizer clinches this deal with a German company called BioNTech. And BioNTech was a player in mRNA, messenger RNA. And Pfizer had turned to BioNTech to work on an mRNA vaccine for flu. Why did they think that it would transfer naturally from flu to the coronavirus, which is a different kind of virus? So there are a couple of benefits to messenger RNA when it comes to vaccination, especially for infectious disease. Um, One is that messenger RNA ultimately allows the body to be its own vaccine factory and create those antibodies to thwart whatever the threat may be, in this case, COVID. And so in a sense, it compresses the timeline, but also even more critically, the time to manufacture mRNA is much shorter. And why is that? So other vaccines require you to, especially for flu, for example, you grow flu vaccines in eggs. Um, you can grow them in cells. There's there's a cultivation process, and that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of resources. You don't have that here. You create the messenger RNA and nothing needs to grow. It goes straight into the body. And so um, you can also adapt messenger RNA quite quickly. One time, Albert Borla described it to me kind of like a VCR player. You put the cassette in. The tape, The tape. (laughs) I'm dating myself there. (laughs) You put the tape in and you can take it out and plug something else. The point being... Messenger RNA is a really great tool if you want to compress the production timeline. And that's what we needed in 
January of 2020. So now Pfizer, we know how the story went. They created (laughs) this vaccine that was used by millions and millions of people around the world. And then when the different variants came out, they, you know, tried to to match it using, as you described, the technology that allows them to kind of quickly readjust it with, you know, some kind of degree of efficacy. Many folks know that this was a, a massive success. Billions of doses shipped around the world to more than 180 countries. But few people know that this vaccine doubled their revenue in a single year. That was 2021. This year, 2022, Pfizer is expected to make more than $100 billion in revenue. Off of the vaccine. More than half of that will come from the vaccine, coupled with the antiviral treatment that they've made for COVID, Paxlovid. So the COVID business is more than half their business now. But, and this is an interesting thing in your story, This creates a big problem because they are so geared now toward coronavirus and, you know, let's all hope a year from now we're not going to be talking about this as often as we are now. They need to do something else. And so they've sort of decided this is their future for all kinds of other diseases. Absolutely. And they're under pressure. Wall Street, I mean, this year, think. This is going to be their most successful year on record. Their stock is down 25%. And that's because the fears that they just can't, you know, they do just, it again like it was a one-trick pony sort of thing? They are a victim of their own success. And investors want to see visibility into the future of their earnings potential. So what are they going to do? So Pfizer would say their messenger RNA strategy is a, a big part of their future. They are continuing to work with BioNTech on flu. That could come to market as soon as next year, perhaps the year after, if successful. Is it only that the mRNA flu shot would be quicker to produce so you get like a better assessment of which flu is coming for us that year? Or is it that it's also more effective as a vaccine? The latter is the biggest question. So we're pretty certain that condensing that production time is going to position us better. That is a bet that Pfizer's making. It's also a bet that Moderna's making. I bet that Moderna has made prior to Pfizer. And Moderna, of course, is the other very big manufacturer of the coronavirus You might have heard its name. Yeah. That is really the first up to bat. That is the first real trial of messenger RNA as a platform after the COVID vaccine. So highly anticipated. Your question as to whether it'll be more effective, I can't tell you. Only the data will. And we are watching for that data. One of the questions that always comes up around drug companies is that they spend a ton of money to develop these treatments that are of great benefit to the world. And, you know, rich countries and rich people tend to get them and less rich countries and people tend to not. The conditions in which we've seen the COVID-19 vaccines distributed are unique. To date, governments have been the large purchasers. Pfizer, Moderna too, they've priced the products differently for low, middle, and high-income countries. I think there's a real question of what happens after we switch to a commercial market. And that is the plan next year. The plan next year is that the U.S. government will no longer pay for COVID-19 vaccines, let alone other COVID treatments, and that this will shift to insurers and the more traditional healthcare system in which we all get our drugs. Once you shift to that commercial market, I think there's a real question as to how these companies will price the products, what that will mean in terms of access, 
what that will mean in terms of global distribution, and where the innovation really ultimately goes. Riley, thanks so much. This was really terrific. Of course. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, the mRNA treatments we could see in the future with Bloomberg's chief medical writer, Robert Langreth. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We talked to Dr. Drew Weissman about the future of mRNA technology and Riley Griffin about what big companies like Pfizer are doing to try to develop it. So next, I wanted to check in with Bloomberg's chief medical writer, Robert Langreth, and ask him, what new cures can we expect to see coming soon? So the way you have to look at this is, you know, at the beginning of a new therapeutic area, you know, it sort of looks like, you know, endless possibilities. And then it takes years and years of research to figure out, you know, which of those possibilities, which of those therapeutic possibilities are, you know, really going to pan out uh, with practical therapies that have advantages over like, previous generations of therapies. So we're kind of, for mRNA, we're kind of at the uh, endless possibility stage, and we're still like doing the research to filter down to figure out like which of those things are, you know, are really going to work out in terms of a, a big deal in terms of practical therapeutics. That's a really interesting point, because one of the things that we were hearing when we were having our conversations was that mRNA allowed the COVID vaccine to be developed much more quickly than other vaccines. It was able to sort of short circuit the usual very lengthy process. Um, So you seem to be saying that that won't necessarily be true when they try to apply that same process to other diseases. Well, so here's what I would say. I would say that, you know, one of the clear and chief advantages of mRNA over other you know, types of, of therapeutic uh, anti-vaccine approaches, one of the clear advantages is in sort of the speed of manufacturing and how quickly you can adjust that. Now, obviously, you know, the pandemic highlighted one of mRNA's chief advantages, which is just manufacturing something fast and kind of adjusting on the fly. 
and it's not so clear yet how important that advantage will be in you know other non-emergency situations. The pandemic proved one area that mRNA will definitely work for is vaccines, and so that sort of de-risks to some extent other similar infectious disease vaccine areas. It suggests that you know there's nothing stopping this from working in infectious disease antiviral vaccines, and so that de-risks other antiviral vaccines in terms of mRNA. When you say de-risk, what do you mean? What is the risk? Here's what I mean by de-risk. Basically, it, it took some of the risk out of developing other mRNA vaccines for infectious disease vaccines because it showed mRNA can definitively work, can succeed and be effective for an infectious viral disease. When you say risk, do you mean that the risk that you spend a lot of years and a ton of money and you come up without a treatment? Yes, it just might not work. There are other efficacy barriers that are just different from infectious diseases. For COVID, we kind of we knew kind of what the best thing to attack was pretty much right off the bat. The spike protein that stuck up from the surface, that was the thing we wanted to generate an immune response against. Now, for cancer vaccines, and you're trying to stimulate the body into generating an immune response that targets cancer cells and kills them. That's what you're trying to do, and that's why it's called cancer vaccines. And it's been this really promising area that's never quite worked out in a big way and, you know, turned out to be very, very hard. So one of the things about cancer, of course, is people think about we're going to have a moonshot to cure cancer, but cancer isn't one disease, it's many diseases. Does mRNA hold any advantage in trying to treat many different kinds of cancers in a way that existing treatments don't. Yeah, so one of the most interesting areas that is being tested with mRNA in cancer is personalized cancer vaccines. And this is an area that play that's still in relatively early stages of testing, and both Moderna and BioNTech are working on it. But this is an area that kind of plays into the strengths of mRNA and the ability to manufacture things quickly. So for personalized cancer vaccines, you're actually taking samples of a patient's own tumors and developing vaccines that would stimulate uh, the immune system attack characteristics of a patient's own tumors. This is like the personalized vaccines and the manufacturing has to go fast. And that's something that can be done with mRNA because mRNA, uh, the technology just allows kind of quick manufacturing of individualized mRNA constructs, the, the pieces of mRNA that are used in the vaccines. And that's just something that technology enables. And it's one of the problems in developing personalized cancer vaccines is that the manufacturing is very bespoke uh, and individualized, and that's hard to do with previous technologies that were the, the production process was a bit slower. So is that something that is showing promise in the laboratory and that actually could go into production sooner, or is that still in the early testing phases? That is in the clinical trials right now, uh, both BioNTech and Myobiderna. BioNTech, for example, is a partnership with Roche, uh, is working on personalized cancer vaccines and melanoma and colorectal cancer, and that's in the second stage of human trials. And Moderna is also working on personalized cancer vaccines. All right, so we talked about cancer, which is showing promise. What other diseases are pharmaceutical companies looking to RNA to possibly treat? 
cancer, infectious disease, and like vaccines. Those are like the farthest along and the, the most prominent. Merck, in August, uh, they said they would spend as much as $3.75 billion to work on vaccines and cancer therapies with a company called Orna Therapeutics. And they're developing this like next generation technology called circular RNA. So there's a couple companies trying that. So, like rare, rare genetic diseases is another big area. These are diseases you probably like, you know, names you haven't heard of that, you know, affect a small number of people, uh, but, you know, often don't have like good therapies. And if you can get something to work, uh, you know, you could, you could charge a very high price and patients are desperate for treatments. And there's a lot of these rare diseases. I would say rare diseases is probably the third area that RNA is looking very promising in. But I can't say, you know, there's a single disease that sticks out. They're test People are testing, trying a lot of different rare diseases right now. So when you look down the road five years from now, 10 years from now, to the extent that you can, do you think that RNA treatments are going to be transformative, that they're going to really change the way drugs are made and diseases are treated? Yeah. So here's the situation kind of right now as I see it. There's definitely going to be a number of vaccine results from other types of RNA, mRNA vaccines coming out in the next few years, and flu being the first one. Um, we'll definitely get a better sense of like how effective is this and what are the advantages, disadvantages versus other vaccine technologies and more mature vaccine areas such as influenza and such as uh, there's another respiratory disease called RSV. So vaccines will have a clear sense of. Cancer within five years will have a better sense of are these personalized cancer vaccines, are they working? Well, we'll definitely have a bunch of results. We'll kind of have a much better sense of that. The rare diseases in mRNA, the rare, you know, uh, genetic diseases, that's still kind of wild card. It's really hard to know how long that's going to take to play out. But what I would say is that infectious disease viral vaccines, that's the one thing that has proof of principle right now. And the other areas, they still need to prove it. Many thanks to Dr. Drew Weissman, as well as Bloomberg's own Riley Griffin and Robert Langrith. You can find Riley's full piece about Pfizer's next act over at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to Big Take at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Falero. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.